Hi, everyone. Welcome to White Coats of the Roundtable, a healthcare career development podcast that discusses career development, non-clinical careers, and burnout prevention. My name is Mike Asbeck, and I'm joined, as always, by John McDonald. John, good morning. Good morning, Michael. You've been up a lot longer than I have. Yes, I. Uh, we were just talking offline. I got up at five today. I've got some slide decks that are coming due within the next few weeks, and I always work best when I'm under the gun and having a little bit of low-key panic about the deadline. So I'm reaching that point where now I'm having to get up early and get this content done. Today's going to be an interesting discussion, and John and I were actually talking about this offline, as we so often do, and then kind of had this moment, aha moment where we realized, hey, we should record this conversation. So, John, do you want to intro the topic, or do you want me to maybe give a basic overview of what we're going to talk about today? It's something that is talked about all the time, the role of academia with pharmacy or with any profession, like what can academia do as Medicare folks were starting to balloon? I mean, we they were worried we weren't going to have enough hospital staff, medical staff, pharmacists to deal with the the aging population. So a lot of schools opened up, um, and we hit the market really fast within you know four or five six years, and it got to a point where we are now, where we have this great exodus. We've talked about that umpteen times on the podcast and they're going to non-traditional roles or they're leaving healthcare altogether. And we are seeing some of that across the healthcare professions with PAs, MDs, NPs, I mean, nursing, everybody. So the question is, when we get to that point, that breaking point of demand, um, not being met or the demand is low, but the supply is high, what has to take place to balance out these careers? Yeah, I, I'm kind of obsessed. I love healthcare economics, and this is a, a big part of it, is the idea of workforce projection. And you're right, pharmacy is going through it where maybe there was too big of an expansion um, due to fears that there wasn't going to be enough pharmacists. So lots of new pharmacy schools opened. I think also in part, there's some greed or or uh, self-dealing going on where schools see a doctoral level program that they can charge a lot of money for, that people were you know very much in demand to pursue because there was a lot of great pharmacy jobs that paid well out of school. And now you have maybe an oversupply that is leading to some significant consequences for the field of pharmacy. So it is interesting to see now what happens. How does academia transition? Um, like you said, there's you know more non-clinical pursuits. So maybe that's something and we can talk about how academia incorporates the more diverse career pursuits that can occur. But outside of pharmacy, I see it in other fields as well. I'm mindful of this because I think the PA and NP profession is going through something similar, maybe something that pharmacy did a couple decades ago where the demand for advanced practice providers, PAs and NPs, is exploding. Pay is going up really fast. Six years in a row now, I think PAs and NPs were both jockeying between the top two positions as the top job in healthcare for the past several years. 
And as a result, we're seeing an explosion of PA and NP schools. And my worry is that the quality of didactic education is watered down by the rapid growth of enrollment in schools, but also that eventually you may reach a point of saturation in the market or oversupply where you have more than what is necessary. The other point I'd make is physicians are the opposite. One of the reasons that PA and NP is exploding is because in the 1980s, the um, the physician world, there was incredible worry that there was going to be an oversupply of physicians. So what they actually did is they capped med school enrollment, they capped residency funding in an effort to constrain supply. And that makes sense in the sense that if you don't want pay to go down, if there's too much supply and not enough demand, that puts downward pressure on salaries. So they don't want salaries to go down. No membership organization is going to advocate for lowering their pay. So capping med school enrollment, capping residency enrollment in the 1980s was seen as a helpful tool to help maintain physician salaries. The government also was worried that if there were too many physicians, this would lead to increased utilization of healthcare. Basically, if you had healthcare more available, people would use more of it and it would be more expensive. So they constrained supply in an effort to cut costs. And all of this was incredibly misguided. Healthcare has become more complex. Our, comp- our population has aged. So the need for healthcare services continues to grow. And because of government policy that was implemented in the 80s, we just simply do not have enough physicians. So very good for me as a PA, because our profession has basically exploded or kind of matured over the past several decades because of this undersupply of physicians. But to tie it back to our topic, it's so fascinating when you look at the role of schooling and academia as it relates to these workforce projections, because a lot of times decisions that are made um, in the here and now have immense consequence on the profession 10, 20, 30 years out. Every, you know, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So there, there's my soapbox I wanted to tie in because I know you're going to come at this from the pharmacy perspective, and I'm going to continue to try and give context to this from uh, tie it in to the other health professions. But I'll, I'll turn it over to you. Oh, that's that's kind of my hope because I want to balance because I think it is somewhat cyclical that we're going to see uh, waves of healthcare professionals experiencing the same phenomenon, but at different times. So it's interesting that you're in a different spot. And I think it'll give a lot of clarity. So initially, what is the role of of academia? I mean, historically, I would say it's to prepare students uh, to function in their prospective roles in the future. However, secondarily, I mean, when I think back to your, your old wooden, uh, those long great rooms, you know, everything's ornate, what the role of of academics was at that point was to be the spearhead of innovation, of study, of pushing projects forward, uh, even working with government, whatever it be, they were the ones kind of leading the way. So secondarily, I would say they equip uh, students for various and variable opportunities and they pave the way for novel advancements in their fields. So now we're at this point, we'll say pharmacy, where we have too many pharmacists in uh, in flow. Enrollment is down, but now they're exiting as well out of the profession. So if these schools are going to stay afloat, they have to maintain supply, right? 
So here's my question with that. So there's an oversupply of pharmacists, and I'm assuming that that's putting downward pressure on salaries. Is enrollment down because people are now seeing pharmacy salaries stagnant or stagnate or go down? Or do you think there's other reasons that enrollment is down? I know burnout in pharmacy is quite prevalent. Uh, retail pharmacy is something that I've, I've talked to a lot of people, and I don't necessarily know if I've ever met someone that loves retail pharmacy. So what are your thoughts on the cause of decreased enrollment? Do you think it directly ties into the oversupply of pharmacists right now? I think it has everything to do with job satisfaction um, and expectations. The expectation was, well, in a very lucrative environment, um, we all know, for better or for worse, the American healthcare uh, system charges a lot of money for medications. And so because it's such a a hot spot for the trading of money in the healthcare system, it would make sense that you would be able to get a bit of, you know, a cut of it. And that's what business is. For anybody listening who is looking at the negative side of that comment, it really I'm strictly talking about this as a business, not necessarily. So that was the expectation, but now with salaries not increasing, uh, with our reimbursements for the medications coming down, uh, PBMs, as remember, pharmacy benefit um, benefits, what they do is they run through a system called PBMs, who does all the paperwork, but they skim off the top. So they put a lot of pressure on us. We're just making a lot less money off of each medication. And the demand of what pharmacists are required to do increases. Now, there is a positive and negative side to it, I would say. One being expansion of these services, talking about um, vaccinations, for instance, with COVID. Once COVID came uh, and somewhat petered a bit, New York State allowed pharmacists to administer almost every vaccine um, with a collaborative practice agreement with a doctor. So we're able to do more. There are some areas in which pharmacists are now able to prescribe oral contraceptives or limited medications based off of a collaborative agreement, like warfarin, um, blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, things that you can get numbers from. I'm not sure you're going to get so much of a psych a pharmacist um, doing those by themselves yet, as of yet. In the Pacific Northwest, there's a, I think New Mexico actually has prescribing psychiatric pharmacists, so a couple states do. Washington um, and Oregon were one of the leading for that as well, but it's just, it's not going to be as prevalent because it's not so as cut and dry. So these services are going up and we're getting more excited about the things that we can do. However, the demand um, for those services are so high that we cannot maintain, I'll say personally, it's very difficult. You're always always running all day long right and the things that you want to do you really want to help these patients out you want to sit down go over the diabetes give their vaccinations have a conversation with them but it becomes this feeling of like get it done get out we don't have the time to be personable so i think that is a majority of the reason as to why there's a bigger exit it's because the pay isn't as grand as we thought it was going to be. The pressures on us, the work environment are only going higher. 
and there's not really the opportunity to make more money because the PBM is pressuring down and cutting our margins. So let me summarize this and make sure that I'm understanding it correctly. Oversupply of pharmacists, so lots of pharmacists out there looking for work or needing work, jobs that are not fulfilling because the ability to have pharmacy salaries continue to grow has been more limited because of external constraints on drug reimbursement. And then at the same time, employers or just the healthcare system asking or expanding the role of pharmacists without a mechanism to to allow increased pay. I, I think I guess what I'm trying to get at is it sounds like it still kind of ties into pay where maybe 20 years ago there was still like the activities in a retail pharmacy probably have not changed, right? You're, the amount of uh, drug throughput or the amount of patient counseling is all there, but the difference is that maybe pay 20 years ago was really, really high compared to other healthcare professions. So there was an offset. I'm a big believer that you know anyone can do anything for a price. And, and if your job stinks, but you get paid a good salary, you can find meaning and purpose outside of your career. And that's a, still a great place to be. But it sounds like if I'm interpreting this correctly, you feel that in pharmacy, it's getting harder to do that because pay has stagnated. The role continues to expand and it's becoming more and more frustrated. So even though you would think an oversupply of pharmacists actually suits, sets up well to expand the role of pharmacy and have pharmacy branch out into different areas, if that's not leading to pay that once again is competitive or compelling for people to enter the profession, it doesn't necessarily solve the issue. Is that a good summary? I think as a pharmacist uh, listening, you could easily say that if you were in your current position and there were double the amount of pharmacists to make up for the work, that life would be 100% better. I think that makes sense. So then the, t the tie-in is you right now, even though you may have enough pharmacists that you could double the number of pharmacists, the revenue mechanism is not there to pay double the number of pharmacists. It, it just cannot support it. So it becomes a labor issue too. So there has to be a give, right? What is it? Is it going to be that we're just going to put West of these healthcare professionals into the workforce? Um, is it that we can't have as quick response services as we once thought? Is this going to have to be a, a change in U.S. US family systems where they recognize you can't just go and expect to be in and out in 10 minutes in a pharmacy. You might might be like a doctor's office. You might have to wait 30 minutes for something. I do wonder if technology is part of the solution here. On my end, I, I feel like technology will continue to, to bring us a path towards innovation um, because it can make a limited supply of healthcare professionals more efficient. And I do wonder with pharmacy, if things continue to go more mail order, if you end up seeing, you know, if pharmacists are in more limited supply, that hopefully then drives pay up, but that pharmacist is then going to have even more of a supervisory role. Maybe it's in a mail order distribution facility as opposed to a retail pharmacy. I wonder if part of the solution here is that a lot of the, the pharmacologic education that currently falls under a pharmacist role gets offloaded to a call center or to AI um, and then allows you basically just to focus on distributing the drugs and getting them out. And it, maybe that happens in a mail order setting. I agree with you, though, you know, because the alternate of having retail pharmacy have more friction, that seems like something that would be a huge issue for, for patients. 
So I wonder if that would be an area of innovation that's yet to come. I, I think technology, I, we've talked about it on burnout multiple times, where one of the number one reasons for burnout is documentation and administrative duties. So technology, just, just to make the, the system software easier to use, um, maybe speaking to other systems, having uh, cross-platform uh, data transfers that makes it easy to understand what's going on in your office, Mike. It's if I'm at the pharmacy and I want to see what you were trying to do changing somebody's Zeprazidone, and it doesn't make sense, logging in and seeing what you did, then I, that makes sense. That would be wonderful, but we are still very disjointed and uh, we don't like to share information, especially across professions. So let me pivot you a little bit because I know you, you really wanted to discuss or we were discussing prior how the pharmacy world, but academia more broadly evolves. And one of the things that you discussed is that if there's declining enrollment, there's really two options here is pharmacy just accepts that enrollment is going to go down and the profession is going to become in more short supply. And that, you know, eventually happens. It has happened to physicians. And as a result, I think physician pay has exploded, may not be good for the broader healthcare system, but a shortage of physicians has led to higher pay. And the alternative to that, I think, though, is that pharmacy education maybe has to shift where the traditional role of pharmacy has been to work in pharmacies. And maybe part of this is that pharmacy education needs to become maybe a little bit more diverse or broad to recognize that there still is a need in healthcare for people to be subject matter experts on how drugs work, especially as we have more and more pharmacologic options, you know, as we talk about the GLP-1 inhibitors and all these things now where certainly there's still lifestyle interventions for obesity, but obesity is becoming, even now, is becoming more of a biologically focused solution. Uh, a medical solution. As that happens, I think there's going to be continued need for drug experts, even if that role is not sitting it behind a pharmacy bench. So talk to me a little bit about what you see as potential evolution of school and training into pharmacy, and then maybe I'll broaden it out to the, the healthcare profession as the world changes, I guess, would be a good way to put it. Now, I have lots of thoughts and dreams, Mike. Right? That's why I wanted to Best tee you case. up real well. Yeah. Best case scenario, I would love to see uh, institutions have a more a la carte method for their students. Um, a lot of these students don't really know what they want to do. Um, for instance, how many times does somebody wait until their last year, last didactic year to decide, I'm going to potentially look into this specialty? So- our students just don't know enough about what's out there. So giving them a better opportunity to meet experts or understand very niche or non-traditional fields would be wonderful because I don't want my, I don't want to just tell my students, you're going to be here. You're going to work the bench for the rest of your life. Um, so we have to have some novel ideas. I believe that we need to partner with, uh, Outside sources, whether it be community, uh, other hospitals, industry, you know, even though we put the, we hiss with the cross up sometimes between academia and industry, um, to push our 
healthcare system forward, we have to work with each other. So we might need to get over some of these preconceived notions of what so, uh, industry is, right? We could have mentor programs, um, hooking these students up with leaders in different fields of industry, marketing. There's so many different fields of pharmacy, nuclear, hospital, ambulatory, just so that we don't have these students answering to people within the school where they feel like there's this hierarchy system. I have to answer to uh, the dean who is my my uh, mentor that they assigned me. You can't really be that honest. So what I really think it starts with is partnering with different industries to share ideas and share resources. Um, and that's, that's, that's just my first one. So I'll let you answer that yeah, I, I like the idea. The the analogy or example I think of is law school, where everyone that graduates from law school is a lawyer, but within law school, you may choose to specialize in criminal law, in business law, constitutional law, environmental law, intellectual property, tax law, healthcare law, international law, dispute resolution, divorce. There's so many different specialties, and certainly you may just go to law school, and then after you graduate, you may choose to practice law in a specialized area. But there's a lot of different programs or tracks that are set up, whether it be internships or specialty didactic education in law school to go through that path. And it's interesting, not just for pharmacy, but I think in a lot of healthcare fields, I love the idea of maybe having a more broad educational experience where the, the goal is still to create a clinician but also to recognize that pharmacy, PA, NP, maybe not as much physician, but even med school, not outside of residency, that these are all really intensive didactic programs that allow a skill set to be built that is incredibly valuable in the healthcare industry, even if it's not just as a clinician. One of the goals of this podcast is to continue to promote the idea of non-clinical and atypical career paths for healthcare professionals. And yet, our education system in healthcare is not set up for that. We don't really teach what to do, you know, if you work as an MSL in industry. We don't teach on, you know, maybe going to an investment firm and doing analysis of different investments for that firm that are in the healthcare sector. I know of uh, a couple of physicians that actually work for, you know, big financial companies. And what they do is they go in and they do assessments of the financial health of healthcare systems that this investment firm is looking to buy out or, or take over. That's a role that is super cool, requires a very high degree of knowledge that is gained in part from what they learned in medical school. And yet, at the same time, there's no acknowledgement in our, in our um, education system for these people that may take different tracks. So I kind of love the idea that maybe the future of healthcare education is one where we not necessarily shift away from clinical training. We need to make sure that the primary purpose of, of education is to produce competent clinicians. But at the same time, I think we should recognize that in our evolving world, as tech continues to take over, as a lot of tasks that were previously done by highly trained healthcare professionals may soon be done by AI, or at least be supported by AI, that there is a need to have a broader set of career options in broader preparation for people when they leave school, whether that be industry, whether that be completely atypical careers. Remember when I mentioned about those long, great halls, everybody's wearing robes and all that? It always seemed to me that 
in these situations, a professor would be linked to two or three students and they would do all of their stuff together. They would do research together. One would barge into the room and be like, I figured it out. And the other ones are like, wow. You know, I, I know it's a little bit more comical, but um, I think there is a lack of that mentorship. So nobody really guiding as closely and directly as it really could be. Um, because there is that mental health side of it too, Mike. We have all these expectations and we move into the field and realize these expectations aren't going to be met. There is, there is a suffering of the mental well-being because when expectations aren't met, you have to deal with the following emotions. But I digress. Uh, when these students are with these, uh, these proctors or these, um, their mentors, there's a, an abundant amount of research that could be done um, to get these students prepared. I'll give an example. Um, I worked with you, Mike, um, on doing some grant um, and some proposal writing, and I didn't know anything about it, right? So I had to go find a bunch of people to help me. I had to look online. I had to even go to some industry folks for, for some of that help. Um, I didn't know anything about it. Had I knowing I would want to do this type of work, I could have worked with a faculty member who who had plenty of experience in grant writing, um, and I might have been able to figure this out earlier, right? Somebody could say, you could have just at this point gone back to your alma mater and talked to the people at that point. But the point I'm trying to make is that we want to do this earlier. This is the type of relationship I would like our students to have with other people in the industry, um, we do need to prop these people up um, to support them better. Because if we don't, what probably is going to end up happening is you're going to have somebody who's excited about pharmacy, they're excited about the potential money, and they know they can do the job because they've been a technician or whatever. So they go, they don't have much direction because they originally just wanted to go to pharmacy school. They might be involved in some extracurricular activities, might get involved in some uh, organizational work. But once they graduate, they might head over to Rite Aid, who knows, and sit there for 10 years and realize, wow, I don't like this at all. I really wish I would have known about the, some of this non-traditional stuff I could have been doing uh, that you and I talk about all the time now, Mike. And now I'm 10 years behind and I feel like I got lied to. I feel like I wasn't taken care of. I feel like, wow, all, the, all those thoughts that come through. We can handle that on the front end, I think. I think that academia has a responsibility to not only get the certification to the student, but truly set them up. I'd, I don't want this to be some sort of a halfway house where you let them in for a little bit, get them well, and let them go. It's No, this should be a... Uh, some continuity to these career paths. Uh, when you are an alum, there should be something more than just getting that yearly donation letter. So here's, I guess, here's how I would lay it out because this is my, my, I feel strongly about this and I can't remember if we've talked about it within the context of the podcast. As technology is moving so rapidly, I mean, ChatGPT launched to the public only a year and a half ago and it's changed things so quickly. 
as that happens, the role of the clinician or the role of the healthcare professional is going to shift dramatically. There's been this gradual march towards de-emphasizing our didactic knowledge or our recall. 35 years ago, pre-internet, a med student had to remember acid base. They had to remember lab ranges. They had to remember medication dosing. When I went through school, so in the, the aughts, I didn't have to remember any of that because even though smartphones were just coming of age, you already had the ability to have electronic pocket guides, have up-to-date Medscape, things like that, um, Pharmacopedia, all these things, so that if I needed to look up a drug-drug interaction, if I needed to look up a reference range, I could do so within 30 seconds because I had it all available. That wasn't available even 10, even 20 years prior to my training. Now, that's continuing to shift, where not only is it that everybody has anything that they want accessible at their fingertips. You can go to the internet, you can go to update, and you can have all the information you could possibly need that would potentially have taken months for someone to find if it was 1950 and they had to go to the library and check out textbooks. It's all available within 10 seconds of, of looking on up to date. But now what's happening is we're entering an era where AI can also help us differentiate what information is needed or important. If we take AI right now, and we put a set of inputs in, we say, this is what the patient is experiencing. These are the symptoms. It'll spit out differential diagnoses. It'll spit out a workup that we have to do. So I don't think clinicians ever get replaced, but what's going to happen is more and more of that knowledge, more and more of that algorithmic decision-making is going to be done by technology. As that happens, it doesn't mean that we become dumb but what I think happens is the skill set that makes healthcare clinicians valuable is going to continue to shift towards interpersonal skills. Because right now we're not at a point where AI is going to replace that. Maybe we will. Maybe we'll eventually get to a point where we have robots going into the room and giving hugs and telling people that they'll be okay. But right now what makes us valuable is that human-to-human -human connection. So as knowledge continues to shift off where we don't have to know everything when we come out of school. We need to know the important things to make sure we're not dangerous. We need to know how to find the information. We need to know how to think critically and triage problems. So we're becoming more focused on critical thinking as opposed to just rote memorization, but also more focused on the importance of communication, the importance of psycho of education, connecting with patients. As that happens, though, I would make the argument that as medical education also shifts to reflect that there is an opportunity to build out more of what we're discussing, to build out more education regarding alternate career paths, to build out education on grant writing, on industry roles, things like that. I think about PA school, and PA is tough because it's, by its nature, it's a very condensed educational format. Most PA schools are, I think, 26 months long. They go through, straight through, and the whole idea of it is to basically strip down med school into the bare bones minimum to get people plugged in and working. And then in exchange, we have a more limited scope because we don't do a residency. So there's not exactly a ton of open space to add more content. But my hope is that as technology continues to shift, in my belief, it's not as important for us to spend weeks having, the pay having someone learn <laughs> reference ranges or having someone learn the exact names of drugs and things like that when it's all accessible, focus on the things that are more concept-driven, critical thinking-driven, 
continue to eliminate rote memorization and then maybe use that space to talk about these alternate pathways, to talk about different ways to pursue a career that may not just be a clinician seeing one patient at a time. So if I could, if I can just wrap it up, yeah, so I please. Could understand better. What you're telling me is because we've been evolving so rapidly in the space of technology within healthcare, we are no longer needing to memorize as much as we do because we have our pocket guides um, and that we could even take it a step further and rely even more on technology as it advances. Whereas we even now, you and I, we probably still know our most of our reference ranges. We know our doses pretty well. We've been working in it. However, uh, there may come a time where we won't even really do so much of that, but rather focus on the holistic national or either regional problems that are going on uh, so that we are focusing more on the patient themselves rather than the didactic work or the study of trying to understand those things because technology always already take us that place. So in the form of academia, what we're saying was maybe we spend a little less time on that memorization and a little bit more time exploring and researching other opportunities. Exactly. Yeah. So I, there's a study out there. I don't know the author, so I can't quote it specifically, but there was a study that found that after graduating med school, one year after graduating med school, uh, people forgot about 50% of what they learned didactically. So, you know, our memories are valuable. We, we aren't encyclopedic where we just remember everything that we're taught. So, so much of what we learn in school is lost anyways. Anatomy, I think, is a great example. You know, do I need to know every single insertion point? Well, if I'm a surgeon, yeah, you better believe I do. If I'm working in psychiatry, I don't remember any of that. So how do we prioritize or identify the things that we do need to learn that are concepts that are sustaining throughout someone's career versus things that we're having them memorize just because 100 years ago, the Flexner Report said this is what we should do. Um, so my hope is that as that evolves from an academic perspective, we will take maybe a more progressive approach and recognize this as an opportunity to also reformat or reshape the way that we train or the way that we prepare people for a healthcare career. Yeah. So one last uh, note that I want to make is we've been talking primarily about how we assist our students into the future. Um, but what can, what could academia do for themselves? And the one remark I want to make is that if we have more of these partnerships outside of the school, it can pay for a lot of stuff. Um, now, just shooting off the hip, if you if you had a sim lab uh, and you had software you had to utilize, you could potentially work with some healthcare, some health tech software companies to trial some of their stuff at their cost. Um, where you might get free software, they could pay you to do some of this, and it could offset a lot of your costs. You become more of a research center, which I love the idea of academia being more involved in research along with industry and health tech and innovating in this way. Because if we are training folks over here to do the work, but way over here are the people making the software and products to do it, and they're not really talking as much, it's like, little inefficient. Yeah, it's a great point. So we, I think there's a misnomer here where we traditionally think of academia as being the place for research, right? We think of these schools being the place for innovation 
and all kinds of, um, you know, new things that are being developed. But then when you look, I think it's like less than 10% of physicians that are in academic roles publish. So there's a big disconnect where uh, we need academia to have those types of partnerships. We need them to be these spaces for innovation, but very often they don't end up being that, especially when you move outside of physician training. Physician training, I think, still has has some tie-in, even though it's diminishing to scholarship and the need to to have that big academic push in research. You don't see that in other health professions. I think PA, pharmacy, NP, they don't have nearly as much of a, a longstanding tradition of research and innovation. And that needs to change as well. Right. I, there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and I think that post-COVID, we are still working through what these changes look like and how the system is going to handle it. But it it does partially come to us as healthcare professionals to, to give ideas, to aid, um, to reach out to our alum even, or even at the very least, um, trying to take care of your fellow uh, colleague making, checking in, making sure that they're doing all right, see if they have any needs. Because at the end of the day, uh, among all of these complications and the unknowingness of the future, uh, I still want to be satisfied with the job I work work in. And I think a lot of that has to do with the people we work with. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great spot to end it too. So John, do you want to shift over to personal items? For those of you that are just joining us for this episode, we always like to finish these shows with a personal item because healthcare can be all-consuming and we like to retain our humanity. And I will defer to you, John, unless you've got nothing lined up. No, and that's the thing. I did have something lined up and I forgot what it was. Oh no. All right. Well, I'll go then. So right before I came in here, I was uh, in my my lunchroom talking to one of the drug reps that was in for breakfast and our connection, he's a good guy and he likes to smoke meat. He likes to sous vide. So every time he comes in, we're always exchanging recipes or talking about the latest, greatest gadget that we got for, for cooking or barbecuing. And the latest thing that he bought is he got a torch, a butane torch. So now when he sous vide's his meat, and for those of you that don't know, sous vide is basically a hot water bath, so you can cook your meat at a specific temperature. So you put it in a plastic bag, you can hold the steak at 140 degrees, which is medium, and then at the end you just sear it, and that's how you get these perfect, tender, restaurant-quality steaks. That's the secret, is when you go to a ste- a nice steakhouse, they're sous vide the meat. That's how they get the steak to be perfect and tender every time. So he sous vide's his meat, and then he bought a torch, so instead of finishing it on a cast iron where you potentially risk overcooking it, he takes the the butane torch and just finishes it with a sear real quick. So we were just talking about different sugary type of uh, finishes. And he was saying that one of the cool things that he's found is if you slather the steak in mayo and then you use the torch on it, it creates this just perfect crust on the steak. And it gives you this incredible crusty exterior, perfectly tender, beautiful interior. So mayo on the steak before you sear it. Now you know. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, we do use butter. So that just reminds me, when we do grilled cheese, I've tried it a few times. You ever heard of using mayo on the grilled cheese instead of- No. Same, yeah, so, so probably same concept, right? You're, it, you're getting a nice cross foot, maybe some more flavor. Because mayo is oil-based, so it makes sense. Yeah, it's it, there's a lot of flavor, but it's not like, it doesn't taste weird. I thought I was going mm-hmm. to. I'm going to have to try it. So- I can confirm, Mike, eh, it does taste really good. 
<laughs> uh, we are in a season of like it's been about three years we've been in our house and it always, it's always around that time where we're itching we're like okay is it now that we make the house our own because now all the projects are coming up and we're wanting to throw everything away and ripping stuff up so you know we just got our roof redone last week i felt so bad for those guys up there they it's supposed to be a two-day job it took them over a week because of ice storms here in rochester so um i'm just excited because that means i get more barn time and i get to buy a bunch of tools and wood so i'm having a blast uh, outfitting the attic here i've got some work on some stairs i gotta do um and i like doing this type of work like when i redid my bathroom I might have to post a picture of this, but I I wallpapered, wainscoting, um, did some really neat stuff in that bathroom, but I enjoyed it. And somebody said, John, you can make a lot of money doing just that if you want to. That's coming up next, folks. Stay tuned. All right, everyone. Well, thank you so much for joining us this week. This is White Coats of the Round Table. If you like what you hear, consider giving us a follow, even leave us a review. If you don't like what you hear, definitely don't review us. This is Mike and John. Have a great week, everybody.